Are supporters of the Paris Agreement still correct that it's the first truly global step toward a sustainable future? Or are critics right that the pact is not nearly ambitious enough? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. The Paris Agreement was finalized on December 12, 2015. World leaders raised their arms in triumph as nearly every country in the world agreed that climate change is a problem, it's caused by human activity, and it needs to be addressed. Three years later, is the deal flourishing or floundering? I guess we've made it through the terrible twos is one way of thinking about that question. Catherine Mock is senior research scientist at Stanford University and an adjunct assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University. She was also a co-leader of the IPCC Working Group on Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. If 30 years from now we look back and say the Paris Agreement was successful, largely it will be because it has provided predictability to enable all of the other bottom-up action. But if you really want to say, are we doing enough? The answer, hands down, still is no. So what happens if the world doesn't meet its ambitious Paris commitments? I think that there's a risk when we frame this as a binary challenge, that either we get to one and a half degrees or we're cooked. Trevor Hauser is partner at the Rhodium Group, where his team focuses on analyzing the economic risks of global climate change. He's also served as a senior advisor at the U.S. State Department, where he worked on the U.S.-China bilateral relations involving climate. I think it's important to be honest about the limitations of what we're doing currently. And I think it's also important to make it clear the benefits of the progress that we are taking. Let's listen as Greg Dalton welcomes Trevor Hauser and Catherine Mock to the Commonwealth Club stage for a conversation about the Paris Agreement three years on. Catherine Mock, let's go to that day, December 2015, in Paris. The world was there. World leaders came together after it failed in Copenhagen. They came together in Paris. What were your recollections? How did you feel when that deal was sealed? It was really an amazing moment in the climate challenge. It was one where, from my scientific perspective, a key underpinning was just a recognition that climate change is happening around the world, every continent. There's also the sense that solutions were possible, costs were dropping in terms of solar and wind. And then the real backdrop was just the level of cooperation. Jumping back one year, US and China coming together with their joint announcements and just really everything else falling into place. So some optimism, some cooperation. Trevor Hauser, you were in Paris, but you also were in Iowa advising Hillary Clinton. How did you, what's your recollection of that moment? Uh, I think I'd been in Paris the first week of the conference and then had to leave to come back to the uh, States. And, uh, um, you know, because of the U.S.-China joint announcement the year before, uh, I think folks were pretty confident going into Paris that it would be a better outcome than Copenhagen had been uh, several years before. Uh, but these are always, you know, 11th hour high wire acts. And I remember uh, uh, breathing a pretty big sigh of relief uh, when uh, that 11th hour came out well in Paris. And uh, that for the first time we had uh, all countries, save at that time Syria and Nicaragua, and ultimately including Syria and Nicaragua, uh, agreeing to a common approach to addressing climate change and setting long-term goals and uh, signaling pretty loudly to the world that we were all headed in that direction. Catherine Mock, there's a lot of talk between the difference between uh, uh, two degrees of Celsius and warming since post-industrial times. Uh, and then there was this kind of 
surprising appearance of 1.5 degrees that came into Paris. It was like, wow, this is kind of, I remember being there and talking to uh, Mike Brune, head of the Sierra Club. He was pretty upbeat. It's like, yeah, this is kind of like, this is a little better than we thought. So tell us the difference, how that, A, how that came in and also the difference between 1.5 and 2, because it's hard to understand what that really means. Yeah. So to a really unprecedented degree, science directly informed the goal setting around what should the limit be. And indeed, we're now pursuing a limit of well below 2 degrees Celsius and with 1.5 degrees Celsius in sight. So in some ways, where that came from was, first of all, a recognition of the degree to which climate change impacts are already happening. The last assessment out, the last full-blown assessment out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out in 2013 and 2014, and it was teasing out impacts system by system. It's the frontline systems, the coral reefs, Arctic sea ice, it's the degree to which we're seeing impacts in extreme floods and fires. It's also really the unevenness of those impacts for communities already on the margin, whether that's food or water insecurity. So in terms of where 1.5 degrees Celsius came from, it was really the fact that this is happening now and we know the risks go up. And there's some really important thresholds, whether it's sea level rise and the collapse of the West Antarctic, Greenland, uh, or other questions that are more about ecosystems shifting into other states where it's really hard to get back. And Trevor Hauser, there's sometimes sort of a binary th idea that like one one point five below everything's okay, and above one point five, there's you know there's Armageddon, but it's really more of a continuum, right? In terms of you know what happens between one point five and two. So so what are the economic risks of one point five and two, and you know what are we really looking at in that along that continuum? Yeah, I mean I think that it's um, you know one and a half degrees is a lot better than two degrees. And for some particularly vulnerable communities, low-lying island states, over a long period of time, the difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees can be existential. Um, at the same time, it's important as we focus on those long-term goals, not to lose sight of the really enormous benefits in terms of risk reduction that we're delivering by reducing what was previously a trajectory of emissions of six degrees or seven degrees down to four or five degrees to three degrees. Each one of those reduction in future warming is going to save hundreds of millions of lives around the world, save billions of dollars in economic costs. Uh, and, uh, and it's important not to lose sight of that progress that we're making along the way as we shoot towards that either two degree or one and a half degree target. Tell us about the architecture of the Paris deal. It's, it's voluntary, doesn't have the, you know, it's not a treaty. It has not gone through the U.S. Senate. Um, it does, it does not, doesn't have the effect of law. Uh, where are the teeth? What's the structure of Paris? So I think it's important to realize that climate agreements are fundamentally different than almost any other kind of international agreement. Um, if you negotiate an international trade agreement, the implementation is really straightforward. You call your customs bureau when you get back from Geneva and you say, lower the tariff rate and the Customs Bureau does it, and it's done. You've complied with the agreement. Um, likewise, nuclear disarmament agreements. Uh, the implementation of that's really straightforward. Climate agreements, to be successful, require not just the action of an unprecedented number of countries, but the actions of millions of individuals within those countries, right? Because reducing emissions requires action by companies, by individuals, by policymakers. You know, what was, to me, one of the most important pieces about the Paris Agreement was 
you know, every day you have, whether it's people getting ready to go to college, deciding what they want to study, uh, corporate planners figuring out how big of a priority sustainability is going to be. And they're looking for signaling. They're looking for signaling for policymakers and from the international community of, is climate a thing that the global community is going to get serious about addressing? And I think Paris sent that message in a way that no other international agreement uh, had done on climate before. Um, the actual compliance mechanisms in a climate agreement are uh, name and shaming mostly. So in the negotiations all the way from Copenhagen up through the U.S.-China joint announcement, one of the biggest sticking points, one of the biggest asks from the U.S. was to make sure that all countries as part of that international agreement robustly and independently report on their progress and their plans so that the international community could look at that and see whether it was adequate and whether we're going far enough. Uh, little did we know when we were negotiating that, that those transparency provisions would, uh, uh, would be very quickly applied to the U.S. to see how far we were doing or falling short, rather, in uh, meeting our commitments. And uh, Trevor Hauser, tell us the China-U.S. backstory, because it's really important. One thing that was very different in Paris was U.S. and China were kind of together in terms of they had a bilateral agreement, uh, whereas in Copenhagen, they were not on the same page. The big, you know, after decades of climate diplomacy, that was a big, big breakthrough. So tell us about the U.S.-China bilateral backstory, particularly Obama and Xi Jinping around the, the APEC summit. Yes, when Obama first became president, expectations were extremely high that with this new Democratic president who had uh, campaigned on a commitment to climate change, that a new international agreement would be possible. But there was this longstanding division between developed countries and developing countries and between large developing countries like China in particular and the U.S. that they should be treated categorically different as part of an international agreement, that the categories that countries have been put in in 1992 should never evolve, no matter how affluent those countries became. And the U.S.'s view was that you know, China and the U.S. should be doing different things because they are at different levels of development, but everybody needs to be doing something, and we all need to be under a common agreement. Uh, that became an unreconcilable difference and was largely uh, what caused the Copenhagen conference to break down. By 2014, the U.S. and China had figured out a way to bridge that agreement through a bilateral uh, announcement between President Obama and President Xi Jinping, and that core agreement between the U.S. and China on having a common structure that both developed and developing countries were a part of is what helped make the Paris Agreement more successful. So Catherine Mock, is Paris healthy at three years old or is it a little uh, sickly child? I guess we've made it through the terrible twos is one way of thinking about that question. I mean, I think the world does look different in year 2018 as compared to 2015. I think hands down in the space of climate change impacts, we're just increasingly understanding that this is something we need to grapple with, not just in terms of reducing our emissions of heat trapping gases, but in preparing for increased precipitation when a cyclone strikes shore, increased risk of fire. That Dimension is part of the Paris Agreement, but I feel like it's something that we're seeing more and more. The Paris Agreement in some ways kind of has this top-down, bottom-up relationship, and I think if we look at the world around us right now, 
Indeed, the Paris Agreement has every single country at the table, and it provides a signal. If 30 years from now we look back and say the Paris Agreement was successful, largely it will be because it has provided predictability to enable all of the other bottom-up action. So in the world around us right now, when we say, is the Paris Agreement healthy? Part of that is the fact that cities are coming together with pledges, states are coming together with pledges at the same time that you have private sector action unleashing innovation. But if you really want to say, are we doing enough? The answer, hands down, still is no. And we see that in a lot of different ways, emissions at the global scale. We had three years there from 2014 to 2016 where they were remarkably flat while the economy was growing. This year, they've ticked back up. U.S. is this year looking like emissions again will tick back up. So we have increasing impacts, a lot of progress in the space of solutions, but still a real need to go faster and bigger. Trevor Hauser, how about the impact of the change in U.S. leadership? You've been in the diplomatic circles, the change of a U.S. president who, particularly in his second term, made climate somewhat of a, a legacy is, issue, Trevor Hauser. Um, what, what has been the change of the U.S. president? Probably doesn't mention climate in the top three um, issues when he's going to a foreign country these days. Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to overstate the impact of that change in U.S. leadership. I mean, there has been, following uh, Donald Trump's election and his announcement of the U.S.'s intention to pull out of the Paris Agreement, as Catherine said, there's been this kind of groundswell of state and city action in the U.S. Uh, trying to do their part to help keep the U.S. on track. Um, that's helpful, but it's far from sufficient. I think the thing that people didn't see about uh, the Obama administration in public, uh, and that really is lacking now, is in almost every head of state meeting that President <laughs> Obama had, he made climate change one of the top three discussion points. And the leaders that he was meeting with knew that he was going to make climate change one of the top three discussion points. And if you are the president of Bangladesh or Chile or Germany, and you're meeting with the U.S. head of state, and you know he's going to ask you about what climate policy you're taking, that drives domestic policy focus in a way that few other things can. And uh, that's completely gone now. I mean, if anything, the opposite is true that the current president creates a moral hazard opportunity for other leaders to uh, backslide. Um, and I think that's, there's really no other country that can play that role in the way the U.S. can. Hey, world, what you say, should us go around for another day or two? You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the Paris Agreement, three years on. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about keeping countries on track to meet their Paris commitments. For this agreement to have teeth, that means there's a system of peer review that can happen. So when countries say every five years, here's what I'm going to do now, here's what I'm going to do now, can we actually tell how far and how fast they're moving towards that in a really rigorous way? That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is taking the pulse of the three-year-old Paris Climate Accord with Catherine Mock, senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Trevor Hauser, partner in the Rhodium Group, an energy research firm. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Catherine Mock, what are some interesting scientific breakthroughs or learn understandings in 2018 that were like we really understood the either impacts or the causes, how this is happening? What, what's some of the new exciting science? 
There's been a lot of attention to extremes, so maybe that's one place to start. I think something that's been really interesting is again and again, we're seeing climate change happening right in front of us. And oftentimes we're seeing little surprises that's making this a harder challenge to grapple with than we could have guessed based on what has happened in the past. So for example, we've had this unending series of hurricanes striking shore, whether it's Harvey, Maria, uh, Florence, Michael. And some of the surprises there have been just how much rain is falling with these large storms staying still and dumping so much water into urban environments that we've paved over and that are not absorbing that water. So in terms of the advancing science, increasingly the models can tease out all of these different ways that we're adding to different ingredients of risk and driving up those kinds of impacts. Same thing goes for fire, where we used to think fire indeed is complex. It has to do with how we have chosen to suppress fires through time and the way that increases the risk. But now it's really a question of, well, what's happening with nighttime temperatures? Does the fire die down? just how long is the fire season? How much intensity of uh, energy is there right in the time when you're most likely to get impacts? So there are a lot of features there where we're seeing that sharp end of the climate system in extremes, and the science is really catching up to what we're seeing unfolding in the world around us. Let's talk about fires, because I think fires were really a breakthrough moment, Trevor Hauser. I've looked at, gazed at climate uh, darkness for, for 10 years, and I didn't really see nearly two weeks where people were putting, wearing masks around the San Francisco Bay Area and putting your mask on a child to go to school. Um, I've heard that, fo you know, forest fires, but it really was kind of breathing it into our bodies, I thought. We, we kind of internalized it in a way that I honestly didn't anticipate. I'd like to have your thought on, on the fires as a, you know, as a risk, as an economic story. It really is a breakthrough story for me uh, in, of 2018. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my first jobs in government was... Uh, at the embassy in Beijing, I had to write the air quality cable, huh. uh, which was reporting on local air quality. And this was in 2005. And uh, at that time, the air quality cable was what determined the hardship pay for US Foreign Service officers in Beijing. And they got about a 25% premium in pay for breathing air in Beijing, which was the same premium as people working in the green zone in Baghdad got at that yeah. point. And that was the two weeks we had here were like a medium bad couple of weeks in China. But there was something about having it happen here where, you know, where I'm not used to breathing particulate matter and uh, at that level to have to like put masks on my kids when I was dropping off at school every day. That really brought the like health consequences of that air pollution um, home. And, uh, and I think it did for a lot of other people too. I mean, we had there were 15 million Californians that for two weeks were breathing air three or four times the EPA minimum thresholds uh, for particulate matter. And the fact that that smoke from the car fire in particular just sat in uh, the Central Valley in the Bay Area for two weeks, I think really was a wake up call for a lot of people. And Catherine Mock, that gets to some of the, you know, the social sciences, sort of the, the human impact, you know, climate started as chemistry and physics, but literally in outer space and, and kind of these complex systems. Uh, but the fires, and I know that work you've done with the IPCC is on, on the human, the impacts, what role are the social sciences playing in this, you know, sociology, psychology, learning about the human responses and, and the human adaptation rather than, you know, the, the ecosystem, the globe. Yeah, so a lot of the rapidly advancing science has really been in the space of how climate change affects people on the impact <clears throat> side, how people are 
perceiving the risks and how they feel about it, and then also just how policy is unfolding. So to run with one of those examples, migration. How will people be on the move in a changing climate is a really rich area. On the one hand, you can say, well, one way or another, people will be on the move. We know in the aftermath of a disaster, for example, there's often displacement, whether it's Katrina or Maria. And the real question is, how might those flows change into the future? But there also will be more managed flows. For example, something that has been happening even in some communities in the US already in the last few years is that people may say, you know, I shouldn't have lived here in the first place, and they might elect to move, and there are real questions of how property markets will unfold. And then even from the direct policy side of this, this perception of people saying, it's not safe, I, I want out, there's often a need for government to intervene. And so that full spectrum of kind of impacts of displacement through to the direct involvement in, of governments in helping entire communities relocate or individual households is something that's totally happening in the world around us right now. And Trevor Hauser, you've been involved with some researchers, collaborators who've looked at the winners and losers in terms of uh, regions in the United States, perhaps regions in the world. So tell us about regions that might be better off in a warmer climate. Who, what are the regions and who's going to be the winners and the losers? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really <clears throat> profound pieces of insight that we're getting in this impact research, I'm sure that Catherine and her colleagues at uh, Woodholes get uh, too, is that the, you know, the impact of climate change really varies dramatically based on where you live and what the climate is like. And uh, we often talk about climate impacts in the economics community in these kind of aggregate terms, percent of GDP or hundreds of billions of dollars. And that really masks a lot of uh, variety in how it impacts individual people. So in the US, for example, a change in the number of extremely hot days each year could lead to a dramatic increase in death rates in South Florida and a dramatic decrease in death rates in the North. I grew up in Wyoming. Very few people die of heat-related stress in Wyoming. Lots of people pass out drunk in snowbanks. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a changing climate, fewer snowbanks in Wyoming will mean less deaths on average. Uh, and it'll mean significantly more uh, heat-related mortality in other parts of the country. And, uh, and it's really important to kind of tease out those big average numbers to, uh, to understand how those impacts are gonna vary. And is it safe to say that wh wherever you live now, the warmer it is, the higher your risk is gonna go? If you live in a cold place, you're gonna see perhaps some improvement. If you live in a hot place, it's going to get worse. Is that fair to say, Catherine? Yes and no. So I think we have clear evidence that when it comes to economic impacts, if you're really hot and you get hotter, it's not looking that great. Norway might fare well. But there's some sharp limits on that, and it really gets to what happens when you move away from temperature as the hazard under consideration. So for example, basic idea if you run with that logic that colder and colder and colder, your economy is going to get better and better and better. But then as we step up to the Arctic, actually we see massive climate change happening in the Arctic, where when that ice thaws, now that water is dark, it absorbs a lot of heat. You've got the ground that was once frozen, not only in Wyoming, but also in Fairbanks, Alaska. And as that melts, whatever was there as your infrastructure is now sagging. So for example, there are a series of indigenous villages in Alaska where they are basically collapsing into 
the water. As the sea ice is melting, waves are striking shore, the permafrost is thawing. And in many cases, the U.S. government picked the locations of those villages and mandated settlement there. But these people are now trying to get out, and they haven't been able to do so. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One are Catherine Mock, senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Trevor Hauser, partner in the Rhodium Group, an energy research firm. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round, uh, which I'm going to ask our guests uh, true or false questions, starting with Trevor Hauser. True or false, in your lifetime, a Trump hotel will be built in the Arctic to serve passengers on cruise ships plying the fabled Northwest Passage that is navigable for the first time due to melting sea ice. False. Catherine Mock, if it were built, Vladimir Putin would have the penthouse suite. True. <laughs> Trevor Hauser, 10 years ago, there was broad industry and some public support for climate legislation in the United States. President Obama could have pushed a bill through Congress if he really tried. True or false? Mm. False. Catherine Mock, it's often challenging being a woman working with some of the men who dominate the world's leading scientific institutions. True. <laughs> Trevor Hauser, true or false, you have contemplated a refuge where you could move your family if the destabilized climate leads to broad civil unrest. Repeatedly. <clears throat> Me too. Um, true or false, there is no haven. False. Catherine Mock, science is pointing to climate disruption worse than your liberal friends realize. True. True or false, Trevor Hauser, Wall Street will figure out how to make boatloads of money off the volatility in financial and property markets due to a disrupted climate. True. True or false, uh, Trevor, you grew up in Wyoming and attended schools financed by oil and gas extraction revenue. True. Uh, this is association. I'm going to mention something. You're just going to mention the first thing that pops into your mind completely irresponsibly and unfiltered. Um, <laughs> Catherine Mock, clean coal. Doesn't exist. Trevor Hauser, carbon capture and storage. Important. Catherine Mock, insurance companies. One year time horizon. Last one, Trevor Hauser, what comes to mind when someone says Rick Perry, U.S. Secretary of Energy? Hilarious. <laughs> All right, let's give them a round of applause for getting through the... the... Trevor Hauser, there's some suggestion that there's a recent climate conference going on in Poland, negotiations. Uh, there's some suggestion that the U.S. is going from kind of benign neglect, where, where President Trump would tweet some nasty things, say some dismissive things, but the, uh, the, the engine of government would kind of be there and sort of supportive without getting in trouble. But there's some suggestion that there's now U.S. is actively trying to stick a dagger into the Paris Climate Accord. What's your take? Uh, so the highest stakes drama going on in, uh, in uh, Poland right now is the drama that's not getting reported in the press. So the all the theatrics around whether uh, the international community would welcome or take note of the UN report is important, but not the thing that matters most out of the outcome. Uh, what's high stakes is what's happening behind closed doors in very technical negotiations around the framework architecture of the agreement. And uh, I have 
what's hopefully not uh, poorly founded optimism that the uh, career civil servants at the State Department are doing their best to protect a framework there uh, that will survive the current administration. So that is kind of do some things that are kind of boring and out of the radar of the political level people that will preserve credibility and, and the mechanism until the day after the 2020 election, which is the first day that U.S. can formally officially pull out, right? Yep. Kind of keep it alive on life support for two more years. Yep. Catherine Mock, your take on whether the U.S. is moving toward more active opposition than it has been? I mean, I think what Trevor is getting at is historically the role of the U.S. in international climate negotiations has been to push for really rigorous binding agreements that essentially are are good in terms of countries doing a thorough job in reporting their emissions of heat trapping gases, uh, making sure that everyone can have high confidence that those data and numbers are right, and that there's a lot of transparency, that uh, China understands what the U.S. is doing, understands what Brazil is doing, et cetera. So I think kind of the interesting thing moving forward is actually for this agreement to have teeth. What does that mean? It means that there's a system of peer review that can happen. So when countries say every five years, here's what I'm going to do now, here's what I'm going to do now, can we actually tell how far and how fast they're moving towards that in a really rigorous way? And so I I think that's essentially all the career diplomats there working hard on the small rooms through the night on this agreement are pushing for a rule book that will make this an effective agreement moving forward. Trevor Hauser, there's a change, obviously, in domestic politics. It was uh, the Clean Power Plan and uh, CAFE standards coming out of the the Great Recession that really were the pillars for the U.S. having credibility going into Paris. How does this new resurgence of a Green New Deal, carbon legislation being introduced in the House, how does that play into this equation of the U.S. leadership and and, and Paris? Yeah, I think it's, uh, so, you know, the U.S., unfortunately, climate has become an extremely partisan issue. That wasn't the case a decade ago, but it's now one of the most partisan issues in American politics. John McCain and Barack Obama had the same position, basically. Both supported cap and trade, had different views about what to do with the allowances. I mean, if you go back and read the 2008 Republican Party platform and Democratic Party platform on climate, they're not that different. Um, if you look, compare the 2016 party platforms, they're diametrically opposed. Uh, we focus a lot on the Republican Party challenge with climate, which is because of primary politics and sources of campaign funding on the Republican side. It's very difficult for Republicans to even talk about climate in a meaningful way. But there's a problem on the Democratic side, too, which is that for most Democratic voters and for the Democratic politicians who represent them, it's still a relatively third-tier priority. What's most exciting to me about uh, what we're seeing happening in the freshman Democratic class in the House is not so much the, any particular policy proposal or the kind of parameters of uh, of a potential uh, Green New Deal, but the fact that this incoming class of freshmen congressmen who have a lot of energy and enthusiasm with them have decided to stake out climate as a priority issue. I think that bodes well for how much priority it will get within the Democratic Party going forward. But obviously, this is going to go nowhere in the Senate. So what's the, people are getting very excited. Climate people are very excited. There's a bill introduced. Well, lots of bills are introduced in, in Congress that never go anywhere. They just so they can go back and talk about them. And I introduced a bill. And sure. so Trevor Hauser, obviously, this legislation it might feel good. It's exciting. Uh, but maybe it's a longer game. This is really about 2020, and 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 it's not going to get. Obviously, Trump's not going to sign it. It's not going to get through the Senate. So 
where's this go? What's, what's the calculation? It's just like, oh, hey, we're introducing climate bills. Feels good. Yeah, there's a lot of, if you were uh, a Democratic Congress that had designs on passing legislation in 2021 or 2022, you wouldn't want to be in the position that the Republicans were when they took back power with something like ACA repeal, where they had seven years to figure it out and they had no game plan within their own caucus, right? So I think that there's a lot of groundwork. There was a lot of groundwork that was laid for Waxman Markey. There's a lot of groundwork that'll be needed that'll need to be laid for any uh, future legislation, and uh, and it appears that now there's some energy for uh, for uh, for the new uh, Democratic House leadership to uh, prioritize that as an issue. Catherine Mock, uh, some of the strongest social science research data we have is is what happens when people get hotter than usual. Tell us about the correlation between heat and conflict. Great. So one of the pretty impressive breakthroughs over the last decade has been teasing out what happens in a hot year or a dry year and these human impacts that let's just say to date, had never been connected to a changing climate. And so what we see is a really strong signal that if it is hotter than average, you get more violence across social scales. And that really plays out in terms of domestic violence and suicide, all the way through to large-scale violence, organized violence within countries, call it civil war. The really important caveat you need to insert there, though, is that when we say, well, why is war happening in the world right now? It's not because of climate. That would not be on the top of your list, right? The top of your list is how is the government functioning? Are you in a post-colonial area where that government is really still building up? What's the economy like? Uh, What is the nature of inequality as it's wrought in societies? So when you think about war, you need to start with those major drivers. But with those major drivers on the table, you do still see amplification of risk from climate. I think that's kind of the key feature of this climate challenge is that no one, maybe except for the three of us, will wake up in the morning and think about climate first thing. But climate intersects with just about everything else that people care about. You're listening to a conversation about the Paris Climate Accord three years on. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about the changing political reality of advancing climate solutions in the U.S. There's an amazing statement from one of the political incoming leaders uh, in Florida recently saying, I'm not a climate change guy, but we've got a sea level rise problem. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the Paris Agreement at Three with Catherine Mock, senior research scientist at Stanford University, and Trevor Hauser, partner in the Rhodium Group, energy research firm. Here's Greg. Trevor Hauser, you've talked to a gentleman in, in Gillette, Wyoming, who basically makes, uh, seems like, shovels for, for heavy equipment. Tell us what he said about climate and perhaps positioning for you know, this changing economy. Yeah, local politics in Wyoming are pretty different than what you would guess if you listen to the national delegation from Wyoming. Um, you know, and this is a state that's largest coal producer in the country, mines almost half of the country's coal, where coal, oil, and gas extraction revenue is the largest source of tax revenue for the state. But, you know, if you're a local politician in Wyoming, you know you have very little ability to control what happens outside of your state. And, uh, and that 
effective policymaking requires like trying to read tea leaves. And uh, that sentiment, I think, was best summed up, as you, as you mentioned, by uh, a equipment manufacturer in Gillette who makes shovels for Powder River Basin Mining, uh, who said a couple years ago when I was meeting with him that you know, he doesn't personally believe in climate change, but if the Pope does, then the world's probably going to do something about it, and he needs to start positioning his company to get ready. And, uh, and I think you find that same level of pragmatism on the ground in a lot of fossil-producing communities of, you know, independent of their views about this issue, they want to know what the future looks like and want to start putting in place a plan to uh, make sure that their communities can transition. So someone who makes shovels to get coal out of the ground might be thinking about, yeah, what's after coal? Catherine Mock, you spent some time in Florida recently where you didn't use the C word, uh, but you were able to talk about the impacts of, of climate. So tell us how the, the kind of the coded language there in Florida. Yeah, there's an amazing statement from one of the political incoming leaders uh, in Florida recently saying, I'm not a climate change guy, but we've got a sea level rise problem, right? So I think there are so many places in the U.S. where there's recognition that the impacts are here and now. And flooding damages, fire damages in the U.S. from all those types of weather and climate extremes added up to $300 billion in losses last year. That's a phenomenal amount of damage being wrought on the economy and also in terms of lives of people in individual locations. And so I think in so many different places, you see people talking about wind because it's profitable and it's a way to build an economy look at Texas or Iowa, for example, and you see people grappling with the impacts where they matter now, whether or not they're calling it climate change. And if you really want your synonyms, look out for environmental change or weather or lots of other preparing for something that just don't put climate and change together in one stock phrase. Trevor Hauser, we haven't talked much about, the, I can't uh, wrap up a, a, or a conversation about Paris without talking about the moral dimension uh, of what the you know the responsibility of um, what is it thirty percent of of historic greenhouse gas emissions you know comes from America uh, so let's talk about the moral responsibility the people who are s contributed most are suffering first and worst I want to address the moral dimension of Paris yeah I think there's two pieces of that one is as a country that uh, developed during a period where we weren't thinking about climate change. We have a responsibility to those countries that are having to develop during a period where climate is a concern. And then also just recognizing that you know, when we look at the impacts research uh, that uh, Catherine does, that our colleagues do, um, it's really the poorest people on the planet that are gonna be most heavily impacted, like with many issues, uh, from the changes in the climate that are already occurring, uh, let alone the changes in the climate that, uh, that, that will happen if we don't reduce emissions. And so you know, I think we as a country have a moral obligation to lead on this issue, both in mitigation and in helping protect those most vulnerable countries. But we as individuals do. I mean, we need to recognize that you know, every time I make a decision to fly for vacation instead of staying at home, I am putting greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, and that's having an impact, a real measurable impact on the lives and health of people around the world. And you know, while the actions each of us take individually are relatively small, it is also the case that there's no solution to this problem that doesn't include actions by all of us. And I think it's important not to get disconnected from that personal responsibility. Do you feel guilty, and do you buy offsets? Uh, I feel guilty and I buy offsets, yes. <laughs> do you feel it, the offsets do not do much to placate the guilt. <laughs> Catherine Mock, do you feel guilty for your personal carbon footprint and do you, do you try to offset it in some way? 
Um, yes, I do. But I think I also understand that we as individuals are in this interconnected system. So we need to take agency in our own lives, how we invest, how we live. I bike. I don't eat too much uh, red meat, et cetera, et cetera. But to really make progress big enough, fast enough, it's got to be all of those different levers being pulled at the same time. We're going to uh, go to your audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. I'm wondering how you could, when, when you're at your talking just amongst yourselves, what do you fear the most? Where the, the Paris Accords are now at 3.3 degrees Celsius. That's what, what if everyone melt, made their commitments, that's where it would be. And no one's, very few people are making their commitments. We expect four or five degrees Celsius by the end of the century. What does that disaster do for civilization? Catherine Mock. Great. So, I mean, I guess in some ways you're highlighting the heart of this issue. So we have the first universal climate treaty with every single country on board. It's an amazing moment in collaboration on this issue. At the same time, we're far from good enough, right, in terms of the world as it exists right now and a world that would limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, they're radically different. We can't even fathom that we uh, would feasibly limit warming to that type of level. I think the real question moving forward is how do we amp up ambition on this issue? A lot of it will come down to fairness, keeping everyone at the table, recognizing that those of us who are the biggest emitters historically have a responsibility on this issue for the small islands, for the people here in California who are most affected and most vulnerable to the impact socially, as well as what's happening in the environment. Uh, it's really recognizing that we're going to need to take a lot of steps forward, recognizing that some of those will make profits and move fast once they get into place, whereas others, airline travel, for example, or cement and steel, we don't yet have the solutions in our toolkit. So all of those pieces absolutely need to come together, and I think your point is exactly right. It's got to be a lot faster at the same time that we've got many features to work from in the world as it exists right now. Embedded in that question was something implied that, that is that people who talk about climate sugarcoat it. Even us who talk about these, these heavy consequences don't fully say how dark and, and serious the, the math is. And we, I hear this sometimes from people who say politicians sign deals that make them feel good, that they know aren't going to really get the job done. Corporations make pledges that they know that look good, sound good, maybe sincerely feel good but they're not going to get the job done. Is there some, you know, people often talk about denial on the right, like it's not exist. Is there also denial light among people who are working on climate that somehow think they're solving it when realistically we're not? I mean, I think in, in that question is what is the nature of risk in a changing climate? And it is severe, widespread, pervasive, and there are features that will be irreversible. And that's something that the science has been piling up over the last 20 plus years in an incredibly massive way. Um, I think, first of all, there's the category of systems most affected in a changing climate. We had major bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef two years in a row. That's the first time that's ever happened in the history of what we've got recorded. It's in the space of extremes, where now we're teasing out those impacts event by event. It's in the space of the unfairness factor of a changing climate for populations most vulnerable within any one country and across countries. And I think one that is hard to talk about, it's the tipping points, where we can't say exactly when we'll commit to the irreversible loss of large portions of the West Antarctic 
Antarctic. We know they are there, those types of tipping points, based on what has happened between glacial and interglacial cycles back in the far reaches of Earth's history. But we don't know exactly how fast those can be accelerated, even though it's a very active area of research. And we don't know because it's so fundamentally beyond what's happened before that we've experienced and measured. So I think there's real understanding of those risks at the same time that it's a complicated landscape. So when we as scientists talk about this, what's reported in the headlines is, you know, IPCC says the world is going to end in 12 years. That's helpful and unhelpful in the same way. And I think that same sort of progress needs to be made in talking about how we see solutions and also how we see pragmatic paths forward to making even more progress. Trevor Hauser, do you think it's possible as being too honest that we should kind of not tell people how bad it is because we'll feel bad and they'll feel paralyzed? I think it's important to be honest about uh, the limitations of what we're doing currently. And I think it's also important to make it clear the benefits of the progress that we are taking, right? So I think that there's a risk when we frame this as a binary challenge, that either we get to one and a half degrees or we're cooked, that there's a risk that people respond to that. If one and a half degrees looks impossible, that people will respond and say, well, why even bother? Because clearly that's not possible. And it would be really unfortunate if that was the reaction that we had as a community because the progress that we've already made in bending the emissions curve down has avoided just a massive amount of future, future human suffering. And the progress that is certainly within our reach is uh, another large quantum of benefit that, uh, that, that we shouldn't abandon uh, while continuing to work towards that one and a half degree, two degree target. I liken the Paris agreement to someone who comes up and says, hey, I lost... 30 pounds, and you say, you know they, they need to lose 100, but you say, great, that's great, keep going. Right? You're not there yet, but you're starting. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pretty simple question for both of you. So if you were king of the world, and you were queen of the world, and you would have complete power to do whatever you wanted, at the same time, the people were happy, so they didn't come with pitchforks and axes to uh, take you down. What would you do? Queen first. All right. So it's a big question. I think uh, I'll take one broad angle there is, you know, what's the role of government, first of all, right? And I think government has a mandate in many ways to ensure the well-being uh, of people in any one country, to make sure the vital core of human life is protected. There's also a question of equity, right, embedded in what government is supposed to achieve. Why is that important? Well, oftentimes the powerful can take charge of a system, and I guess if I'm a queen, we're going to assume I'm a benevolent queen. There's also uh, a feature of government where we say, shouldn't investments that government makes be cost effective, uh, not wasting money. So from any of those perspectives, keeping people safe, uh, ensuring equity, and doing what is in the best economic interest of a country, as queen, I'd be helping societies respond to a changing climate, right? Climate change is so complex, but if you want to just simplify it, it's so many ways just a technology problem. We could get to you know, maybe 80% emission reductions with technologies that already exist. There needs to be a fair and just transition for the 
economies of the past as they transition into the economies of the future. But this is something that we have done again and again and again. We know how to create new technologies and deploy them. Then there also needs to be the collaboration across countries to really deploy that broadly. Uh, and then the final thing I'd be doing to keep people safe in an equitable way is really making sure we're addressing the impacts that are unfolding. And that is hard. I guess if I had all power, I could shape how market forces work um, and also how individual communities harden their homes so that they are resistant to fire. Uh, but that perspective of really grappling with the risks that are unfolding right now would also need to be part of the equation. And King. All right. Okay, so four things. Um, I'd set a date certain when utilities could no longer sell any electricity generated uh, with carbon dioxide emissions, and I'd provide a significant slug of investment to help them get there. I'd set a date certain when auto manufacturers could no longer sell internal combustion engine vehicles, uh, and uh, provide a slug of investment to help them retool facilities and help market that next generation of electric crossover vehicles to buyers. Uh, I would uh, set a standard for the carbon emissions and steel and cement and slap a massive tariff on imports of steel and cement from other countries that didn't meet that standard. And then finally, I would set up a massive national research institute that was solely focused on growing lab-grown uh, meat and dairy products uh, that are indistinguishable when I pick up my hamburger. And, uh, and then I would buy a shotgun for when my cattle ranching uncle comes to kill me uh, to uh, keep him <laughs> off my property. Wait till they hear this in Wyoming. Okay, <laughs> welcome to Climate One. Okay, a question, a bit of an advice, I guess, question for small islands. Uh, so you said, from the perspective of some of the larger, more emitting countries like the US, there's some kind of a sense of moral responsibility. Um, but from the small islands perspective, you know, do you think that there's a way to sink our teeth into the decision making that goes on in some of the bigger countries or are really just subjected to you know, more on the adaptation side. Um, do you have any advice for, for the more vulnerable communities um, at the forefront of, like, do we have power to enact change on the uh, more global scale, I guess? I would say, so I think it is the political power that small island states are able to have in this process is really large. So in Copenhagen, one of the things that happen that I think made President Obama prioritize climate in a second term was conversations that he had directly with the leaders of small island states. Now, President Obama is, uh, grew up in the islands. He's from Hawaii. So he had a kind of personal connection there in a way that not all leaders do. But that same kind of moral clarity and existential threat was what made the inclusion of one and a half degrees in the Paris Agreement possible. It was uh, it was an alliance between small island states and uh, and developed countries that wanted to take a more aggressive approach to climate that uh, that got that included. And I think there is really no substitute for that constant clarion call that's coming from small island states to remind. The rest of us for whom this can, we have the luxury for this to be a tomorrow issue, uh, to that this is a, a here and now and an existential issue for uh, millions of people around the world. Greg Dalton has been talking about the Paris Climate Accord three years on with Trevor Hauser, partner at the Rhodium Group, an energy research firm, and Catherine Mock, senior research scientist at Stanford University and a co-leader of the IPCC Working Group on Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. 
To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.